Jeff Benedict has profiled a number of Latter-day Saints during his career as a journalist. Steve Young, Jabari Parker, Dave Checkets, and Clayton Christensen, to name a few. Having grown up a member of the church, Jeff has been able to tell their stories in a way few could. Having been friends with Jeff for years, he texted me after our conversation and described it as a trip down memory lane where all the memories were good. I hope you'll join us on that trip during this special bonus episode. Jeff Benedict is the best-selling author of 16 nonfiction books, including the number one New York Times bestseller, Tiger Woods with Armin Catan. His latest book, The Dynasty, is the definitive inside story of the New England Patriots dynasty and was published in September 2020. He has also been a special features writer for Sports Illustrated and the Los Angeles Times, and his essays have been featured in the New York Times. Benedict's stories have been the basis of segments on 60 Minutes, CBS Sunday Morning, HBO Real Sports, Discovery Channel, Good Morning America, 48 Hours, NFL Network, NPR, and ESPN's Outside the Lines. He is also a television and film producer and resides in Connecticut. This is All In, an LDS Living podcast where we ask the question, what does it really mean to be all in the gospel of Jesus Christ? I'm Morgan Jones, and I am so excited to have my friend Jeff Benedict on the line with me today. Jeff, welcome. Hey, it's great to be here, Morgan. Well, I am going to start. Sometimes when we have people on the show that I know personally, I like to start by giving a little background on how I know them because otherwise it might be weird at some point in the conversation. I met Jeff for the first time when I was a freshman at Southern Virginia University and I had gotten special permission from the school to take an upper level writing course and Jeff was the professor and I loved his class so much and the things that I learned from him that I was talking to my mom at the end of the semester and I said, this is somebody that I'd like to learn more from and she said, well, have you thought about asking him if he would consider having an intern? I asked, Jeff asked the school, and I had the chance to intern with Jeff for a little over a year, I think. And it was just such a treat. And so Jeff has been a mentor and a friend. And I am just so thrilled for people to get to hear what an incredible storyteller you are, Jeff, and and your experiences. I remember that time actually really well, because I was a brand new professor and faculty member at Southern Virginia University. I had just moved there myself. So in a sense, I was a freshman. And I remember you being in the class as a freshman. And I remember you asking if you could be an intern. And I I had actually had a lot of experience with interns when I was at Northeastern University in Boston. And I had been an intern myself. In fact, my entry point to journalism was through an internship that profoundly changed my life. And so I've always been a big advocate for interns. I think the only reason I had to ask the school about you was because you were a freshman and um, and you had taken an upper-level writing class. But that was a great experience. I remember the book we worked on at the time. And I remember being disappointed when you transferred to Brigham Young. But I also thought it was a good move for you because of what you were planning to do. And it's great to see where you're at now. 
Well, thank you. So Jeff, we've got plenty to talk about. My first question for you is you grew up in New England and obviously not a lot of members of the church there. That's a little bit relatable for me growing up on the East Coast. Tell me a little bit about your faith and the family that you grew up in. And also, we're going to be talking today a lot about some sports writing that you've done. So tell me a little bit about your love for sports from a young age. So I was raised in southeastern Connecticut, which in a shoreline community that's on Long Island Sound. My family was Italian. So I was sort of born and raised in in and around the Catholic faith. I uh, was baptized Catholic, you know, as a as a baby, and that was my reference point. My mother converted to Mormonism when I was uh, a little boy, and growing up in my community, I was most of the time I was the only Mormon in my school, whether it was grammar school or middle school or junior high. There were a couple of us in high school, but it, it was different in the sense that, I mean, it was a great thing for me to grow up that way because I was always surrounded by people who were from other churches, other backgrounds than mine. And uh, I thought, you know, you don't appreciate that as a, as a child or a youth, but it actually helped me immensely when I grew up and became an adult. As far as sports goes, the, the town that I lived in and the area that I lived in Sports were just a huge part of our life. Little League baseball, peewee football, recreational basketball. Sports were just really, really big. And they are throughout New England, but where I live particularly, my town is exactly the midway point between New York City and Boston. So growing up, there was always this great, rich mixture of Yankees and Red Sox fans, of Giants and Patriots fans, of Celtics and Knicks fans of Bruins and Rangers fans. And so there were in school, these spirited sort of arguments and contention about sports. And I, you know, I've told you that I had a subscription to Sports Illustrated when I was a kid. And one of the things I look forward to every week as a child in grammar school was running home on Thursdays, because that was the day the magazine arrived in my mailbox. I I would run home. It was a dead run because I lived, my school was less than a mile from my home. And I would run the whole way just to get home and have that experience of opening the mailbox door and pulling out the magazine to see who was on the cover this week. And those are some of the memories that I still have crystal clear because they were formative. I would have never imagined, obviously, then that one day I might write stories that would appear on the cover of that magazine. Um, It feels almost fairy tale-ish for me when I think about it, but that's how it started for me. And then tell me a little bit about one thing that I watched in preparation for this interview was a a BYU alumni event that you spoke at and Steve Young introduced you. And we'll talk a little bit more about your experience with Steve Young. But one thing you talked about was you said it actually made it easier in my life to have Steve be an All-American. And so you're referencing Steve Young, who grew up in Connecticut, and then went on to play at BYU and then for the 49ers and how that experience made a tremendous impact on your life and made it easier for you to be a member of the church. Well, so, you know, speaking candidly, like any child, I think when when you're a minority, whether it's a racial minority or a religious minority or, or even 
an economic minority, if you're the only poor kid and you live in an area where there's a lot of wealthy people, you have insecurities. And I had insecurities about my faith because I was the only one. And so when you're the only one of something, it, it's, you know, you, you can feel awkward at times. And I certainly did growing up in a town where there were no other uh, Mormons around me, my age. And, and so my peers didn't really know what that was. And to them, there was a strangeness to a religion that they just didn't know about. And so I, I would be pretty quiet about it. I, I never really talked about my religion in school or around my friends. It wasn't that I necessarily was hiding it. It's just I didn't talk about it. And then Steve Young came along. Now, we lived on opposite ends of the Connecticut coastline, but Connecticut's a tiny state. It's like a postage stamp. And so Steve was the biggest high school star athlete in the state of Connecticut. And his senior year at Greenwich High School was, you know, historic. And so everybody knew who he was. And when he went to Brigham Young and became an All-American and a Heisman Trophy candidate, his stardom back in Connecticut just kept rising and rising. And his Mormonism was, of course, associated with his name. And so that was actually really helpful to me because my peers, who were all athletes, they looked up to Steve for his athleticism. They admired him because he was a Heisman Trophy candidate. And then, of course, as he became an NFL star, that just got bigger and bigger. It provided for me something that I could connect my religion to with my friends that seemed more normalized to them. The, the strangeness factor was sort of diminished. And it just made it easier for a kid like me who was just, you know, trying to find my way. And that's really what I was talking about in that event that I did with Steve. It's something that Steve and I talked a lot about after he asked me to help him write his, his autobiography. It was interesting because I'd never met Steve Young in my youth. He was uh, four years ahead of me in high school or, or five years. And so when he was a as I recall, when he was a freshman at BYU, I was a freshman in high school. So when he was a senior in college, I was a senior in high school. And so we never met in high school. And then in my career, we never crossed paths. I, we, we never ran into each other, which is kind of interesting. Until the day that I, I interviewed him for Sports Illustrated, I was doing a feature story on Jabari Parker. I was profiling him when he was in high school and the magazine actually wanted me to interview Steve Young and Danny Ainge for that piece. So I, I called Steve and, and did the interview. And it was after that interview, in that same phone call, that he asked me whether I'd be interested in helping him write his biography. That came out of left field for me. Like I, That was the last thing I expected when I called him to do this interview. And that was the start of our relationship. But as our relationship evolved... You know, I later had the opportunity to tell him how much of an impact he had on me as a kid and why it was so fulfilling for me to be able to sort of come full, full circle and do something for him, which was to use my, whatever you want to call it, experience yeah. as a writer <laughs> to tell his story in a way that would resonate with the American public. And that's just, you know, when you talk about your journey, like to me, that was so many years later. You know, I was in my mid 40s when I met Steve, mid to late 40s, actually. And so a long period had gone by between the touchstone moments in our lives. One when we when I he and I were youth. And then later when I was in my four, late 40s, and he was in his early 50s. 
Yeah. That's one thing that I really appreciate about you, Jeff, is that you kind of like live life to its fullest and then appreciate when those full circle moments come. And we'll talk about a few of these today. But first, before we get into kind of the things that you have written, you took kind of an interesting path to becoming a journalist. You became a writer. One month into law school, you signed your first book deal. How did your experience... And you finished law school. I think that's important to know. How did your experience in law school and becoming a lawyer affect your career as a writer or how has it? I mean, I think the starting point there is I never set out to be a writer or a journalist. And it, it never occurred to me uh, when I was in college that writing could be a profession. Like, obviously, I knew there were people who wrote books and wrote plays and scripts for movies and made money doing it. But I never thought about it in that way. I mean, I read a lot of books in, in college and love to read, but I just didn't think of it as a profession. And so I went through college and majored in history. Then I went to graduate school and got a, a master's degree in politics and then went off to law school. And the path I was on was towards the practice of law and politics. Those two areas were where I wanted to be professionally. But in between, you know, during graduate school, I started doing some writing on the academic side. And I spent a lot of time doing it. And then I was naive enough to think that I could publish some of the things that I had spent so much time researching and writing about in graduate school. And I really was naive. I didn't know anything about the publishing industry or how it worked. I was fortunate to get a book published when I was just coming out of grad school and getting ready to go to law school. It was a small book. It, it wasn't a bestseller, but it got a lot of visibility and attention because of the topic. It was a book about violence against women. And the violence that I was writing about was violence committed by athletes. And so that was at the time that OJ Simpson was going on trial for murder. And Mike Tyson was serving a prison term for sexual assault. So it was a topic that was very topical in the news. And to have a man writing about it was was really different and unique at that time. So the book got a tremendous amount of publicity, and so did I. I did a lot of television in the national media. And then I went off to law school. And that, when I say I was shocked, I really was that as I started law school, I was approached about writing another book, but for a much bigger commercial publishing house like Time Warner. And and having a, a big contract and a big contractual obligation. I obviously wasn't thinking about that when I wrote the other book. The other book was just, this was something that was I was passionate about. I knew something about. I had a unique viewpoint, and I really wanted to share it with as many people as I could. I wasn't thinking money, job, profession. That's what law school was for. And so I really had to make a, a major decision whether to sign that commercial book contract one month into law school. And I decided to do it. I went through that first year of law school, which was brutal. I wrote the book in one year. And then at the end of the first year, I had to decide, because I was offered the chance to do another book contract, should I just drop out of school and just write full time because I could make a career out of this or stay in school? And, and I decided to essentially do both. As a security measure, I stayed in school and continued with my law degree. And, um, and I also signed yet another book contract and wrote 
during my second and third year of law school, wrote another book. And being in law school, the training that I got through law school is very different than you would get in a journalism program. Uh, I had to write a lot in law school, but I was writing things like briefs and legal memos and legal research papers and things of that nature. And it doesn't necessarily prepare you to be a good commercial audience writer. But on the other hand, it teaches you a lot of things about discipline, about research, about obtaining documents, getting information. So I felt like my legal training was really, really valuable and a really good use of time. I wouldn't encourage everybody who wants to be a journalist to go to law school. Uh, I'm just saying in my case, it proved to be really helpful. And I'm fascinated by the law and by politics and business. And so usually when I write a book, I often look in those areas because usually that's virgin territory when you're, when you're doing a story like the story that I just wrote about the New England Patriots dynasty. There's a lot of areas in their, in their story that haven't been explored because they're legal, financial, or business areas that are less obvious places for a journalist to poke around. Yeah. Absolutely. So that was in what year, Jeff, that you were, what year did you graduate from law school? 2000. Okay. So fast forward to 2005, you've written a few books at that point. You had been a writer for 10 years. Is that right? Roughly. Yeah. And you said you'd never written a word about your faith. You and, yeah. and you said, I never had a reason to. But then you took your editor to the Temple Open House in Manhattan, and he had this idea for a book afterward. Is that right? So the story is, it had probably been nine. I, I'd been a published author for, a, let's just say, a decade okay. at that point. And the church was opening its first temple in New York, in New York City. And I brought a number of my colleagues and friends in journalism and the media to see it during the public open house period. And one of the people that I brought was my book editor, a gentleman named Rick Wolf, who had a profound influence on me because he signed me. He was the guy who signed me that first commercial book contract when I was a first-year law student. And he, he and I were really good friends, just had a lot of love for him. And we, he, you know... Rick is the quintessential New Yorker. He doesn't have enough time for anything. And so we were in his office and I had asked him about going to the open house and he had agreed to go. And what really surprised me was, you know, how long, his typical question, how long is this going to take? And, you know, I downplayed that, you know, I said, it's not going to take long. We can do it quick. Uh, Cause I didn't want him to change his mind. And so we hopped in a cab and went from the time life building over to the, the temple which was a pretty good hike. And so we took the cab and we went through and it actually took us longer than it should have. And as we left, I was really, what I was concerned about was how long we'd been there. And so I said, you want me to hail a cab? You know, as I know, we need to hurry up and get back. And he goes, you know, let's walk. And I was like, okay, you know, you're going to walk all the way back to the time life building. We had this terrific conversation because we took the long way back. We did it on foot. Walking through Manhattan, we just talked about things that we had never really talked about before, more serious things, things like family and relationships with parents and faith, religion, things of that nature. It was really good. And it, it was not long after that. It, it, that experience 
wasn't the direct catalyst for this, but it was related. Not long after that, we spoke on Thanksgiving weekend and, and, uh, we were just checking in. And I, he published a lot of business books, CEOs like Jack Welsh and Ted Turner and Hank Paulson, people who were really big in the business world in the eighties, nineties and early two thousands. That was kind of his specialty book area, that and big sports books. And so I just ribbed him a little bit and said, there's, I said, there's probably not much in the business world that I know more than you about, but here's one thing. I bet you didn't know that a handful of the biggest corporations in New York City that you do business with happen to be run by Mormons. And he goes, really? Like what? And so I rattled off Madison Square Garden, the New York Knicks, Radio City Music Hall, JetBlue, Airlines, American Express, Deloitte and Touche. And I got about that far. He goes, no way. And I said, yeah. And I can tell you some more. Harvard Harvard Business School, uh, Dell Computers. And he was just like, all right, stop, stop, stop. He said, do me a favor. He goes, send me an email, 10 names, 10 biggest companies. And so I did. And literally after that weekend, Monday, he called me back and said he wanted to publish a book called he want and he wanted to call it the Mormon way of doing business. So like he, he already had this in his mind <laughs> and he wanted me, he basically said, what, what would be great is to get like a handful of these guys, maybe six of them, eight of them to cooperate and see if they could basically share their stories about how they integrate their great success in business with their commitment to family and then their commitment to their, to their faith. And he said, and who better to write it than you? Cause you are one of them. <laughs> and that's what he said. <laughs> and, and I was like, I, I really couldn't believe it. I was shocked. There was no book proposal, nothing. And so that was the reason for it. Like I would have never named a book that like to me, that's not a title I was crazy about. I still am not crazy about it today, but he liked it and the publisher liked it. And it was their idea. It wasn't mine. And they asked me to do it. And I thought, you know, this would be interesting. These are smart guys. I knew a couple of them, but most of them were strangers to me. And so I started one by one calling them up. And that was the reason and the impetus for writing about basically the faith that I belong to for the first time in the, in, you know, in a public domain. Right. Which is interesting when you think about the fact that you said, you know, growing up, your faith wasn't something you talked about a lot. No. And so then all of a sudden here you are kind of becoming a more public face of a member of the church. You said that writing that book, The Mormon Way of Doing Business, changed your life. How would you say that it changed your life? I mean, I can honestly say, well, not every book, but of the 16 books that I've written now in my life, I would say almost all of them, there's a couple of exceptions, but almost all of them have changed my life in in really noticeable ways. Like I can look back and see significant changes in my life because of working on and writing a, a book. So most books change my life. This one did in, in a couple of ways because number one, it introduced me to eight 
not just men who happen to be these corporate titans, but it also introduced me to their spouses and in, in many cases, their children. This was a really intimate personal book. So I got to know eight families in my own religion that I didn't really either know at all or know very well. And they're really successful people and really great families. And so I was at an age in my own life where being able to profile and shadow those guys was enormously influential and informative for me. You know, it's like learning from people who have gone before you and who are smarter than you are and more experienced in the world than you are. And so I was like a sponge just absorbing all that. And a lot of what I learned, obviously, I tried to put on the page so the reader could learn it. But then there were also a lot of things that I saw and heard and observed that I I wouldn't put in a book because maybe just this was more for personal consumption. But, you know, you sort you have to know where to draw lines as a journalist and 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 where to be judicious in what you share with the reader and what you don't. And when people let you in their homes and in their lives in a real intimate way, you have to have discretion. And so there were a lot of things that I saw around these families that were so helpful to me and taught me things and benefited me and my family that I wouldn't necessarily share all of it. And and so it did profoundly change my life in lots of ways. Like I, I still consider all of those people dear friends, and I just have wonderful memories of the impact they had on my life. Yeah. Another thing, so you you mentioned already that you grew up reading Sports Illustrated. At at the point that you were asked to write, or did you pitch the cover story about Jabari Parker, or were you asked to write it? So I pitched it. That was after I had started being a special features writer for Sports Illustrated. Right. Again, if you talk about pathways and journeys, uh, when I was in graduate school and I was an intern in graduate school, I met another guy who was in school at the same time. I was in politics. He was in journalism. His name is B.J. Schechter. He went on to become an editor at Sports Illustrated. He was a journalism major at at Northeastern University. I was a politics major. He went to become an editor at SI. And, you know, we stayed friends. We were, we became great friends during our college years. And at one point, you know, we were talking and I just said, Hey, I'd like to, I had done some stuff for SI. And then I said, I'd like to do some, some big, you know, some bigger pieces for you guys. And he was like all for it. So he became my editor and I just started contributing these, what we call special features. And I wanted to do the Jabari Parker story because I actually read about Jabari in the New York Times. Ironically, I read about him and the religion writer for the New York Times had written a story about him. So I didn't read about him in the New York Times sports section. I read about him in the New York Times religion section. And one of the reasons the New York Times is my has been my favorite newspaper since I was in college is because of its diversity of coverage. There's so many sections in the paper. I read the paper religiously every day. And this was one of those days where I read something. I was like, I want to follow up on that. And I read about this kid in Chicago who was an African-American Mormon who was, you know, this great basketball player and was being projected to be, you know, going to play in the NBA someday. And so I wanted to find out more about that. And, and so I got 
permission from Sports Illustrated to do what we call like an exploration where I would just go out there and see see what's there. And it started by me needing to get permission to talk to Jabari because he was a minor at the time. And so I, I went through his parents. I was a complete stranger to them, but I reached out to his parents. At the time, Jabari's mother was a Mormon. His father was not. And I spoke to both of them. And they, once they were comfortable with me, I flew out there to Chicago, met Jabari and met the family, spent some time with them at their home. And they got comfortable enough to say that they would agree to let their son cooperate with me for a potential profile in the magazine. I did not pitch it as a cover story because you don't really pitch that way. Cover stories are decided way down the road later when the magazine knows kind of what the story is. I didn't even know what the story was in the beginning, but it was a long process. And I spent, you know, basically his junior year working on this. I went to school with him. You know, I went on the road with his high school basketball team. I, it was the second time that I had gone into an African-American community in a, in an urban area. I had done it previously in Compton with another family who had a, a, a son in high school and they allowed me to basically, you know, sleep in their home in Compton and go to school with their son at Compton High School and be with him on the practice field and in the classroom and in his home and really feel what it was like to be him. And we did a story in the magazine called Straight Out of Compton, and it was about this this kid named Katam Ham in, in Compton, California. It was my favorite story that I had done with Sports Illustrated because it was so intimate and I, I fell in love with this family. So then I wanted to kind of do the same thing with the Parker family. And, and so I told them about the story I had done with the Ham family in Compton and said, I, I kind of want to do a similar thing here, but the slightly different twist would be, I am going to focus on Jabari's religion because the magazine's interested in that. And it tied into why they wanted me to interview Danny Ainge and Steve Young for that story. So all that went on there. Yeah. So there are other stories that we could talk about, Jeff, where you have interviewed or profiled members of the church. You talked about Kyle Van Noy in the system. You interviewed Spencer Hadley um, after his incident at BYU and wrote a beautiful story about him. And over the course of time, I think it's just interesting how these stories have kind of come to you and how, and I say in the interest of time, I'm going to skip over Spencer Hadley, but if listeners get a chance, I'm going to put the show notes and in the show notes, I'm going to put the link to that BYU alumni event where you told the story about Spencer Hadley, because I think that's remarkable. And you said in that event that four families had joined the church because of that story at that time that you were aware of. And so I think it's interesting how kind of the Lord was working through your writing. And then we come to Steve Young. I just spoke with Steve Young yesterday. And he told me that when the Patriots were trying to decide whether or not to give you access 
for this book, Dynasty, Steve Young was contacted by Robert Kraft and he asked him, is Jeff someone that you should trust? Now, Steve, having worked with you on his autobiography, reassured Robert Kraft that you were absolutely worthy of trust. And I want to talk a little bit more about trust and what that means. But first of all, tell me a little bit about your experience. You touched on earlier, Steve, reaching out about wanting you to write his autobiography. But what was that experience like for you? And how did it bless your life working on that book with Steve? Well, Steve was, you know, what can I say? I mean, for me, it felt like once we got into the project, and it didn't take long, by the way, to feel this way, but I felt like I was writing a book about my brother, like an older brother that I never had, you know, at the risk of potentially getting choked up on your podcast, which I don't want to do. It was, for me, it was emotionally really rewarding to, to be involved with Steve. I, I just had so much admiration for him and respect for the way he lived his life uh, on and off the field as an athlete. And I got intimately familiar with that by writing his biography and researching his life and interviewing so many people in his life, going all the way back to his childhood and, and then working my way all the way up to the present. Steve's had a very, very full life. He's crossed paths with the most famous people on the planet and then the janitor or the, the guy who cleans the locker room at Brigham Young University. And his relationships are kind of the same. Whether you're somebody who's a, a president or someone who is a ball boy, Steve treats you the same. And I, I witnessed that a lot. And so I working on his book was for me was it was an honor and a real privilege. And I just I'll tell you what was a capstone moment for me that I think a lot of your male listeners will totally understand is when we got to the end of the book, the writing of the book process, NFL films wanted to do a documentary about Steve and Steve agreed to do it. And I was going to help produce the film and it was going to be strictly based on the book. And one of the things we wanted to do was shoot Steve in these different locations around the Bay Area. Candlestick Park was in the process of being demolished. It's now gone. But when we started talking about doing this film, Candlestick Park was literally under demolition. So it was still standing, but the wrecking balls were there knocking down the stadium. We got the NFL Films got the city of San Francisco to stop the demolition so we could take Steve there and film part of the documentary inside Candlestick Park. And I I was there because I was helping produce it. And one of the things they wanted to do was recreate Steve's famous pass to Terrell Owens to beat the Green Bay Packers in the playoffs, which is famously known as the catch two. And um, so Steve needed to throw that ball in the place where he threw it in the game, and then they were going to overlay the real footage of him throwing to Terrell. And they needed someone to go in the end zone and, <laughs> and catch those passes. And so I volunteered because I'd been working on this book for over four years with Steve. And I'd never actually had a catch with him. Like we'd never thrown a ball together. And I thought, if Steve Young's going to throw passes in Candlestick Park, I'd like to catch them. 
And so I went down and stood in the end zone where the end zone would have been, right where Terrell Owens caught that pass. And Steve threw me probably a dozen passes, maybe 20, and NFL Films was was filming at. And as I was sitting, standing there, catching those passes and looking up, the sky was blue. It was It was the middle of the day. It was a beautiful day in San Francisco. And I was imagining this stadium full of people rocking as Steve Young helped the 49ers win this playoff game. And I, I could envision it. And then I was also thinking, how crazy is it that a kid who grew up in southeastern Connecticut in a little coastal town, you know, pulling <laughs> magazines out of his mailbox would be standing here doing this with Steve. It was just, it was hard for me to wrap my mind around that I was getting to do that. And I was thinking about that never would have happened if, if I wasn't a writer. Um, that's an experience I never would have had. And so one of the reasons I love my job as much as I do, and I love writing so much is because it has given me these kinds of moments, like for 25 years, I've had these kinds of moments and they, they're just, it's hard to describe. I'm a guy who relies on words for a living and I'm hard pressed to come up with words for how meaningful those kinds of moments have been. That's so, so powerful. And I appreciate you sharing it. And I appreciate the detail in which you just shared that experience. I, in that same BYU alumni event, when Steve Young was introducing you, he was talking about how you both had shared an experience. And he said, we had the exact same experience, but it was a completely different experience through his, Jeff's eyes. The detail and taking in the context and the depth and the richness of what I thought was just another moment in life that I went right through and would have never thought of. He finds some deeper meaning in it and it's compelling. And I think if listeners go back just a minute or two, you'll hear that the way that Jeff sees the world is through this kind of taking in of every moment. And I think that that's a really beautiful way of living life. And I feel like you haven't taken any opportunity for granted, Jeff. And so I love that about you, Jeff. I love the way that you appreciate every opportunity that you've been given and you soak it in and you live in the moment. Another thing that I have noticed over the years of being friends with you is that you are somebody that shows respect to people of all walks of life. That respect for other religions comes through in your books. I think in this Patriots book, you talk about Robert Kraft and his family's Jewish background. I love and I that. Think I you love sh- that. You yeah. show respect for that and you it makes the reader respect it and want to know more about people of other faiths. And I think unless we're willing to give respect and to listen to other people when they talk about their faith and how important it is to them, they're never going to want to listen to why it's so important to us. And so I think that's so important. I think showing respect for people of other faiths and wanting to know what they believe and not not wanting to know what they believe with the, the intent of changing it, but wanting to to know what they believe because you know that it's so important to them. And I think that shows through in that book. Is there anything you want to touch on about what that was like for you? Yeah. I, so look, w- writing a book about the New England Patriots 
the dynasty was this is was a dream for me. Like this was something that I wanted to do. The, the Steve Young book isn't something I dreamt about. I never imagined <laughs> writing about Steve Young's book. That's not something I've had on my wish list. Like this is something I'd like to do. That was an opportunity that came to me. The Patriots book, on the other hand, is entirely different. This is something I've wanted to do for a long time. Like it's on the top of the bucket list. And I'm a New England native. I've grown up here. I understand why New Englanders have such a deep affection and affinity with this team. The New England Patriots are like religion to New Englanders. It's the church of the Patriots. I mean, people here connect with this team in a way that is different than any other sports team, including the Red Sox, the Celtics, and the Bruins. It's different with this team. I And I totally understand that as a New Englander. So this was something I wanted very, very badly. And when I first met with Robert Kraft, the owner of the team, when we first started talking, we didn't talk about football. We didn't talk about the Patriots. He wanted to talk about faith. He did. I, I didn't bring that up. He brought that up. He wanted to have a discussion about faith. He talked a lot about his upbringing and the role that religion played in his life, the role his father played in his life. His father was a prominent Jewish leader in Brookline, a, a suburb of Boston, the most prominent Jewish leader in their community. He was very religious, very devout, and he raised his family that way. It had a an incredible impact on Robert as a boy and, and it still has an impact on him today. And so I was sitting there, he used the word tithing in the first meeting that he and I had when we were talking about the possibility of me, my just wanting to write this book. And I stopped him because I said, I kind of had a little laugh, a chuckle when he used the word tithing. And he said, why are you laughing? And I said, there's only one other person that I've ever written about who's used the word tithing. And that was Steve Young. (laughs) <laughs> and, and I said, so I'm not used to hearing that word in, in an interview uh, like this. And he, but he, tithing was a word that was familiar to him because of his upbringing and his religion. And so I was, I was thrilled at the outset to find out that he wanted to go where I wanted to go. In other words, I didn't want the dynasty to just be another book about a football team that happened to be the greatest football team of this century. I wanted this to be a deeper dive into what made the dynasty. How did it become what it is? And in order to understand that, you have to understand the people who built it. And he's the builder. You know, he was the creator. He was the man who started it all. His personality and his his fingerprints are permanently imprinted in the dynasty. And so things like his religion, his home, his his parents' parenting style, all of those things are really important in understanding who he is and how he built the Patriots organization. Obviously, I was similarly interested in questions like that about Tom Brady, the quarterback, because he's instrumental in building the dynasty as well. He comes on the scene much later, but once he comes and Bill Belichick comes, that's when the real winning starts because they take the foundation that Robert Kraft established 
and then they run with it. And so I wanted to go to those places and I was thrilled that I had a subject in front of me who was telling me that that was where he, he was signaling to me that that's where he wanted to go. So I was, I was thrilled from the, from the start. Yeah. And I think it's cool because the reason that you pick up on those things when you're interviewing somebody like Robert Kraft is because those things that are important to him are the very same things that are important to you. Yeah. And I think that that's, that's powerful. Another thing really quickly before we wrap up here, we talked a little bit about trust and Steve Young said about you in all of his work, there's an honesty and an integrity to it. And ultimately, Steve Young vouching for you led to this opportunity to write this Patriots book. I think, Jeff, trust is so important. It's something that that makes a huge difference in the hearts that we're able to get into and the places that we're able to get into. And you've been able to, to reach and get into many different places that other people might not have been able to get into. Why is that trust so important to you? And how is it something that you, you work consciously to protect? Yeah, I just, at the point that I'm at in my life and in my career, I'm really selective about the stories I want to tell. And, and I'm also really particular about how I tell them. The Patriot story could be told 20 different ways. In fact, there have been plenty of other books written about the Patriots over the years. I wanted to tell this a certain way. And here's an example of what I mean. I start this book off early on with a scene where Robert Kraft is a young college student at Columbia who's come home to Boston for the weekend. And he walks into a diner at midnight with three friends and spots a girl in line. And she's pretty. And she's with another boy. And he, he's thinking, I'd really like to date her. And he gets her phone number. And the next day, he calls her at Brandeis University. And he goes to see her at Brandeis University. And long story short is that night they end up on a date and they're at the end of the date, they're sitting in a car in the parking lot at Brandeis. And he had worked really hard to get her on this date because he didn't think he'd get her to say yes. And it, but he gets her to say yes. And they end up in the car and they're talking and she is falling for him while they're having this hours long conversation in, in his cold car on a February night in Boston. And eventually there's a moment where he turns on the car to get some heat because it's cold and the radio comes on and Moon River, the theme song um, from Breakfast at Tiffany's is on the radio. And of course, Breakfast at Tiffany's was the number one movie in the country at the time. And Moon River was the number one song and it's playing and his date loves the song and starts singing along. It's this great romantic moment that you can visualize and you can actually hear because everybody knows Moon River and everybody knows the lyrics. It's a love story moment. And I worked really, really hard to tell that story authentically. And also when you talk about trust, that is a way, like the reader, the, the person that you're interviewing, in this case, I was interviewing Robert Kraft a lot about this scene because I wanted to get the scene perfect. 
it helps the subject know where you're going. Like when you're asking those kinds of questions and getting down to that granular level of detail about an intimate moment like that, the subject gets a sense of what you're about. They know what your priorities are by the questions you're asking. I was interested in those kinds of things because I think they speak to who he is. It, it tells you a lot about who is this man who now is world famous because he owns the most successful franchise you could argue in the world. But at that time, he is a 21 year old that no one in the world knows. You know, so there's a lot of foreshadowing here. You're, you're seeing the seeds of someone who's going to become something. And what you're seeing it in is in a moment where he chooses his wife and she chooses her husband and they're going to go off on this journey together. And I'm basically telling him by my questions, but also the reader by what they're reading, this is the kind of book this is. You're really going to go inside there and know these people in an intimate way that you would not normally know someone who is now world renowned. And, and so I think the comfort level of trust is built by the kinds of things you want to talk about with him. What are you asking him? You know, what do you want to know? And, and that's what I was doing. I was making it clear without saying it that I want to come into your life and I want to go to places. I want to go where your heart is. I want to go where your mind is. Cause those are the, if there's two parts of you that I want to visit for a while, it's, it's your heart and your head. I want to, I want you to let me in those two places because I want to know how you feel and I want to know how you think. A lot of times it's, it's not what a person says to you. It's what's going through their mind that is much more interesting. And so the car scene has a lot of thoughts. Like Robert thought a lot of things in the car that night and he shared those things with me and I was able to put them on the page. So the reader feels like they're sitting in the back seat listening to Holly Golightly sing Moon River and watch two people fall in love. I mean, yeah. it doesn't get any better than that. Yeah. Well, I touched on that you, those are things that matter to you too. I will never forget Jeff and you you may hate me for saying this publicly, but when we were at SVU, you had a big poster of your wife in your office. And that always made an impression on me that that, that was the person that you loved. And I think that your family is important to you. Your faith is important to you. Your integrity is important to you. Why are those the things that you value? I think most people, I'd like to think that most human beings value those things the most. I certainly do. And I do have, I actually have multiple posters of my wife. And it's, it's just that, uh, I mean, that's why we work. That's why we do what we do. I mean, I, there's no place I'd rather be than with her and my kids. I, I'm a homebody. I love to be home. And my idea of the I, ideal Friday night is, you know, come home, barbecue a dinner in the backyard, and then everybody hunker down, uh, watch a movie, eat ice cream, stay up late, you know, with the doors open on a summer night. I mean, like that's, to me, that's an exciting life. That's what I want. It's just what makes me happy. And so I think that that's, I think a lot of people are like that. The trick, of course, is finding someone that you, you mesh with and that you, you can stay with and last with. And I feel fortunate that happened because when I was growing up in my little coastal town in Southeastern Connecticut, one of the things I feared was that I would not find that person. And it turns out 
she lived 3,000 miles away on the opposite coast. And uh, we were lucky that we found each other. But I, you know, I'm just grateful that I have a family that likes my job. And then I have a job that's really compatible with family life. You know, I, yeah, I work a ton of hours and, and I work a lot. And prior to COVID, I was gone a lot. But journalism provides ways to incorporate your children and your family into your career in ways that not every other profession does. Yeah. My last question for you, Jeff, and this is a question that we ask at the end of every episode of this podcast. And the thing that I love about it is that I think we've been able to show that there are a lot of different ways to be all in your faith. But what does it mean to you to be all in the gospel of Jesus Christ? So, you know, I think for me, probably the way I would answer this, and it's going to sound to some people like, I don't mean this to be irreverent at all, but I really relate to something that that Bono said about this. And in fact, I once had a great conversation with Sherry Dew about what I'm about to say to you. And, and that is, Bono has been very well spoken about, he's a Christian, and he reads the Bible. And he's talked about how important it is to him to read the Bible, and also to practice privately in his home and with his family and in his life, the tenets of the New Testament and the things that that Christ taught. I relate to that big time. I love the, the stories and the lessons that are contained in the New Testament in particular. Um, I've read those, the four gospels, I don't know, 40, 50 times. And I think that the, the core of those things, like, those are what I believe. Like, I believe that if you go through life practicing those simple, they're simple, but hard to do lessons. The, the things that Christ did and taught and said, like, if you can master just a handful of those, you know, love thy neighbor as thyself. You know, this basic idea of treat people the way you want to be treated. You know, the golden rule, the, the beatitudes, those things. I, I always think life would be so much better if people just would gravitate to those kinds of simple things. Even if you don't want to put your hand up and say, I'm a Christian or I'm Jewish or whatever. But if you just embrace those teachings, it's it's so much better. and. This idea of doing treating your neighbor well, treat your neighbor the way you want your neighbor to treat you. It, it's 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 profound, but it's it's simple, and yet we have a hard time doing it. And so, my idea of when you talk about all in is, I always feel like I I can't, I'm not like good enough to get all in. Like I struggle to just do. Sometimes, be good to your neighbor is really hard. You know, it's, I, I, you know, when the guy cuts you off on the road, y- you want to just throw your fist up and say, hey, buddy, it's hard to do those things. And so I, my idea is to just, I just do my best to try to practice those things that are on those pages that I believe in to my core and, and that I think makes life a better place. Thank you so much, Jeff. It's always, always a treat to talk to you. Likewise. 
A special thank you to Jeff Benedict for joining us on this bonus episode of All In. Thanks to Derek Campbell for his work on this episode, and thank you so much for listening. We'll look forward to being with you again on Wednesday.